0: So first of all, can you introduce yourself for the coaches in Taiwan?
1: Yeah, my name is Devin McConnell. I'm the high-performance director for the Arizona Coyotes, which is an ice hockey team in the National Hockey League. Uh, I've been a part of this organization for uh, about three seasons. Uh, Prior to that, I worked uh, for another team in the NHL called the uh, New Jersey Devils. And uh, before that, I worked in the the U.S. collegiate system in the uh, NCAA.
0: Cool. So, uh, since you work like most of the time you work with like hockey players, like is there like certain like physical demand for like being a pro hockey player? Yes.
1: Yeah, so hockey is a really unique sport um, physiologically um if you're not uh, if player or if people aren't super familiar with it uh where you're at uh, it's one of the fastest team sports uh on the planet players skate at over 20 miles an hour um they typically uh work at high intensity sort of interval uh bouts uh, so players will be on the ice for 30 to 45 seconds kind of all out uh and then uh they they line change out uh, new players come on so uh, in any given period uh, a player might have uh between 7 and 10 45 second shifts um that are all you know usually from a heart rate perspective over 90% max heart rate um it's uh you know it's a sport that's very um technique and finesse based but it's also very uh uh physical and aggressive um so it's a it's a pretty unique sport uh, especially when it comes to the uh the demands physiologically and, and how we think about strength and additioning and, and performance development.
0: So since it's like very unique, is the like strength training or like performance training gonna be different with uh like let's say like football or like basketball?
1: Yeah, it's it it's probably a little bit in the middle between those two sports. Um it's not quite as uh, a aerobic as American football, which, you know, would be, you know, five to 10 second, uh, efforts interspersed with 30 seconds to a minute rest. Um, at the same time, it's, it's not as continuous as basketball, right? Because it's, it's 30 to 45 second all out shifts, um, followed by, you know, usually two to three minutes of rest. So the, um, the, the biological demands are somewhere kind of in the middle, uh, between the two sports. Uh it's it's physical like American uh football, uh from the standpoint of, of uh collisions and body contact, body checking. Um at the professional level, players can fight. So there's a uh interesting uh sort of dynamic that way. Um but it's also very uh very skill based like basketball would be as well. So it, it kind of sits in between those two sports from a physiological perspective.
0: Cool. So uh when like programming for a, like, uh, let's say, like, energy system, how would you, like, program it? Yeah, so energy systems are, are um,
1: interesting with hockey, again, sort of sitting in the middle. Uh, all three, you know, dominant energy systems are important um, for different reasons and at, at different points in time. Um, certainly, the, the anaerobic energy system is the, the dominant um, energy producer uh, during those 45-second shifts that players uh, operate in. Uh, at the same time, those shifts are often interspersed with, you know, three to five second explosive efforts followed by, you know, five to eight second sort of glides or lower intensity efforts. So there's a there's an alactic power component to it. Um, and at the same time as well, the aerobic system is really important um, from the standpoint of being able to recover from those shifts. So the aerobic system isn't necessarily producing um, a, a large amount of the, the power for the athlete in ice hockey but it's really important to be able to recover from the anaerobic bouts that the players go through over and over.
0: Cool. So since it's in season right now and I know you guys season like it's like very hectic. It's kind of like uh three or four games a week, right? So Yeah, since, exactly. So since there's a lot of game during the week, how exactly do you program like the strength training through during the season?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, at the NHL level, that it's difficult. Um, it's very much like the NBA. We play almost every other night, uh, over the course of the season. Uh, like you said, three to four games per week uh, on average, uh, our approach here in Arizona is, uh, you know, what we call a, a micro dosing approach. So we will do something from a training perspective almost every day. Um, we, we kind of classify our training into four different categories. Um, so we have uh you know our our force or strength you know um emphasis training days those are typically performed uh, post game um uh, so after games we'll usually do our heaviest lift we'll have a speed power type of uh lift and those are usually done the day before a game um we'll have what we call a structural lift which is um a lot of sort of core balance um higher volume sort of hypertrophy ish type of work uh, those would be done either post game uh, or if we have two days of practice before game and then we have recovery days where uh, obviously if we're you know we're playing a back-to-back the first night we might do a recovery session so you know we we are typically doing something almost every single day whether it be post game strength development uh, day before a game speed and power development or structural work that helps to keep the body aligned and keep the players as healthy as possible.
0: So basically they have to like do the strength training like every not really strength training, but they need to be at the gym like every day. So is that going to be like uh is that like exhausting or like how long would the session be like and since it's everyday how to make sure they're not overtraining?
1: Yeah, another great question. We follow a very, very low-volume approach because we are, you know, essentially training every day and we're competing every other day. Um, so a, a given training session uh, might only consist of, you know, three to four exercises, two, two to three sets, uh, you know, three to five reps. Um, for instance, our, our post-game strength training list uh, that we might have tonight after our game, uh, might consist of you know two sets of trap bar deadlift two sets sets of chin ups um and two sets of dumbbell bench press uh all for you know maybe three reps so pretty low volume relatively high intensity um at the same time our our speed power work usually that's done on a like I said a practice day before a game and usually as part of our warm up so the, the players will still warm up uh, for practice and for games every day so our speed power work would be you know, basically the, the end portion of our dynamic warm up, And that might consist of, you know, again, maybe two sets of plyometrics, two sets of medicine ball throws and two sets of, you know, loaded jumps or something along those lines for, for power and speed development. So it's a very low volume of work. Um, but again, it's this idea of micro dosing. So we do little bits kind of continuously all the time.
0: So uh, do you do like any, like, or do you use like any kind of like technology to like monitor the fatigue or there's like a questionnaire, that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, we, we um, do a lot in the kind of the sports science area um, from a readiness and, and monitoring perspective. We don't do any subjective questionnaires here, uh, but we use force plates. We use uh, velocity, um, uh, you know, gym aware velocity tools in the weight room. Uh, we use some equipment from a company called 1080 sprint, 1080 motion. Uh, so we utilize that. Um, so we, we use quite a bit of technology, um, external load monitoring. So, uh, GPS type tools as well as heart rate, uh, to, to monitor internal load. So we use a lot of tools to, um, help track the athletes, understand, you know, what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, where their fatigue and readiness is. And so that we can, um, you know, help, um, push when we need to push and back off when we need to back off
0: so kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into the, like the technology when you guys you like use force plates and like 1080 sprint is there like any certain like let's say is it the same with let's say like basketball you guys use like counter counter movement jump to like excessive fatigue and like what kind of like what is there a certain metric you're you're going to like look into?
1: Yeah. So uh, that's exactly what we do on our force plates. We look at uh, primarily counter movement jumps. We'll do them one to two times a week. Usually as part of our training, again, they kind of fall into the, the speed power day. So whenever we have that day on the schedule, we'll be doing uh, counter movement jumps on the force plates. And we use that information in a bunch of ways. Um, from a long-term development perspective, we look at metrics like, um relative force output, peak power output, um, things like that, Uh, breaking uh, breaking force uh, to identify where our players are, where their strengths and weaknesses are. And that information will help us uh, in programming so that we can tailor things on an individual basis based on what the individual needs. Um, From a readiness perspective, we look at things like uh, time to take off, um, breaking phase duration, Um, takeoff velocity things that tell us uh, a little bit more about how they're performing neuromuscularly so are they are they moving the same way that they normally move are they moving at the same speeds that they normally move Uh, so we'll use that information uh, on more of a a day-to-day basis from a readiness perspective and we also look a lot at left right asymmetry uh, to try to Um, red flag potential injury concerns minimize the incidence of injury and certainly in the return to play process this information comes uh, becomes very valuable as as we we bring back players back from injury to make sure that they're getting back to to baseline and to back to where they they were when they were healthy
0: so kind of want to go back to the thing you mentioned that you guys do like uh training like every day so i know in like American football, they're probably going to do like uh, Thursday or Wednesday. And in the NBA, they're probably going to do like game day lift, no matter if it's like pre game or post game. So for you guys, you do every day. Is it some kind of like cultural things or like why instead of like because it's a crazy schedule? So why do instead of like just only put in the game day lift, why do you guys like you use it? In like every single day, yeah, we find that, um,
1: from a fatigue management standpoint, uh, we have better success with small doses of stimulus more consistently applied rather than larger doses or, or you know, longer training sessions less frequently. So, if we were only training, uh, if we were only applying stress to the athlete post game, um, the reality is. Uh, it would be, you know, three to four times a week, but we probably wouldn't get a very beneficial speed and power stimulus because it would be post-game when the player is fatigued. We can still develop and maintain strength output in in the presence of fatigue, but it's a lot harder from a speed uh, and power development standpoint. So by sprinkling some of that stuff in on practice days before before practice when the players are a little fresher, uh, we think that we're able to influence those characteristics a little better um so again it, it it ends up being about the same amount of total work over the course of a week as if you had somewhat higher workloads or or, or training longer training sessions just post game uh but we we sprinkle things in uh almost on a daily basis to, to continuously apply that stress
0: well cool. so next thing i want to discuss is like speed training for hockey because on like when we train like Chat guys or like american football speed is be- speed is like exactly like leaner but when it comes to like hockey there's a little bit of can i understand this is a little bit of the side push a little bit instead of only like uh sagittal plane there's probably a little bit more of the sagittal plane but yeah frontal plane that kind of stuff
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, especially at higher speeds at, at near max velocity. Yeah. Uh, the skate, the skating stride has a very, it's not actually frontal plane. It's more transverse plane, but it's, it's certainly a side to side motion. Um, but the acceleration pattern, uh, over the first five to 10 meters, uh, on ice is very, very similar to what you would see, um, a land based athlete or a track athlete look like. So we're looking for the same types of um shapes and patterns I know that you've had you've had Boo on here before uh talking about speed development from his perspective as a track coach and uh, a lot of what we'll look at from a speed development standpoint is really about acceleration. We do uh we do try to influence max velocity but more much more important in ice hockey is is uh is acceleration because the game is played over very, you know, much smaller area. Um, so a lot of the mechanics that you see or that you would coach a team sport athlete on land or or even a track athlete um, from an acceleration perspective are very, very similar. Um, but that being said, there, it is a different biomechanical movement um, at higher speeds. So definitely those are things that, uh, that we pay attention to um, from a, uh, from an injury management standpoint and also from a technique standpoint.
0: So uh do, do you also like microdosing like sprinting during the season or it's only for off season?
1: Yeah, we do. We actually use our 1080 sprint on the ice uh, once or twice a week uh, when we have access, uh, you know, when we have a, a practice schedule that allows for it. And again, very small amounts. It might be two to three sets of 10 meter sprints with, you know, uh, 10 to 15 kilograms, depending on where the athlete uh, is kind of profiled. Um, so it's just small amounts, small touches. Uh, we spend a lot more time on it in the off season, obviously, but it is something that that microdosing approach comes back, and we do uh, little bits of it uh, as often as possible.
0: So you mentioned you're probably gonna skate or do speed training on on ice. Do you gonna let them sprint on like land during during the season or only for off season?
1: Yeah, we we sprint on land. That's very common in ice hockey. You know, as part of our. Uh, part of our warm ups, part of our training, um, it's it's pretty typical to do that. Short distances, we don't do. You know, our weight room is is fairly small, so nobody's doing more than five to ten meters. Um, and it's not super high intensity work. Uh, it's more patterning and and things like that. But we'll get we'll get a few reps of short sprints in again on land and on the ice several times a week. Uh, we also work hand in hand with our coaching staff to make sure that um, the speeds that players are actually achieving in practice, just within the practice plan. Are uh, are you know if we're touching above ninety percent a couple of times a week in practice, those are the things that we we look at so we try to sprinkle those things in and, and help have the coaching staff build build drills that help to influence those things
0: cool, so I know in ice hockey there's gonna be a lot of like uh because they have to shoot the goal, so there's gonna be a lot of like high speed rotation of work so how exactly do you like program these kind of like training? and how to like minimize their injury injury chances because it's basically like uh asymmetry, right? Yeah, there's there's certainly always gonna be
1: some some asymmetry inherent uh with hockey players uh or, or any any rotational based athlete that primarily rotates one direction. Um so I think from a an injury preventative Standpoint. I think that's where a lot of our um, our structural training comes into play uh, to try to minimize or, or reduce any gross asymmetries. Knowing that you're never going to eliminate those things altogether. From a, a rotational power standpoint, I'm nothing super fancy. We do a lot of uh, a lot of med ball throws and things like that, both directions. I think is important to try to minimize some of that, uh, but still develop some of that power output. Uh, but it really comes down to um, you know, understanding functional anatomy, and whether it's a hockey player, a soccer player, a basketball player, the human body works the way the human body works, uh, and so we 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 try to keep that in mind when we're programming our athletes. We do a lot of unilateral work. We do a lot of um, contralateral contralateral upper upper and lower body combined type work to try to maintain uh, fascial sling integrity and things like that to minimize those issues.
0: So, can you like? Give us an example, like how was the, like the core, se- core training session going to be looked like, like, so is like some, uh, exercise you're going to do and how many of the exercises are going to program it?
1: Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not going to have necessarily a separate session that is core training, uh, but we're always going to have, uh, quote unquote core exercises, um, sort of built into any of those types of training days. Um. On the more strength-based day, so post-game lifts, we're going to focus more on uh, core stability. Uh, so things like um, anterior core rollouts or ball rollouts to maintain um, pelvic control uh, and 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 anti-extension work. Um, uh, pal presses or anti-rotation presses, chops and lifts, those types of things uh, to, to create and, and maintain motor control and stability through the trunk. Uh, and then on structural days, we'll have more movement-based uh, core work that might be um, more dynamic in nature. So whether that's uh, those might be medicine ball type work or uh, again chops and lifts, more dynamic based. Um, so we're integrating different types of core training into our into our bigger picture training program.
0: Cool. So uh, is there like like any common injury you see when you train like? Uh ice hockey players and how would you deal with that
1: yeah so uh hip flexor uh, groin, uh lower abdominal injuries sports hernias are really common in ice hockey um so again a lot of what we talked about just what we consider good training uh you know uh core stability uh thoracic rotation hip mobility unilateral lower body strength all of these things to me go into the, the bigger bucket of um, injury preventative work uh, especially for that sort of hip core growing area um, so those are things that we're continuously uh, you know working on and utilizing and always touching upon um, other types of injuries that are pretty common um, shoulder you know ac separation sprain type injuries um, because it's a it's such a high-paced collision-based sport um, there's less uh, less specific work Uh, that we do to prevent those things because they're more contact-based but uh, having um, sort of a robust and fairly well-balanced upper body pushing and pulling strength I think is really key to those things so those are those are some of the things that are common uh, injuries in ice hockey that we try to work around.
0: Cool so I noticed that in American football there's probably gonna be a like 40-yard dash they're gonna be looking into and like basketball there's like Jumping ability or like jump heights they're gonna look into. So for ice hockey, is there like certain like test or like certain metric you guys gonna like is like the de- determine the player's physical ability to be a great player?
1: Yeah, I mean you named two of them right there that we we utilize. Uh, we talked about counter movement jumps. Uh, you know utilizing force plates for us, but that's certainly a big component. Um. We think that, uh, you know, lower body explosiveness is measured by vertical jumping, uh, is really well correlated to skating speed, especially acceleration. So vertical jump is really important in ice hockey. Uh, we do 40 meter sprint on the ice in our testing battery, uh, and we do force velocity profiles based on that. Um, and we look at, at five meter, 10 meter, and then the full 40 meter sprint, uh, time and, and utilize that uh, against speed being such a key component to ice hockey. Uh, that's really important. We do, uh, what we call a a hot lap or a flying lap. So basically, uh, we have timing gates set up, uh, from blue line to blue line on one side of the ice and the player starts on the opposite side and they skate all the way around the rink so they can get up to full speed. And they, we measure them and their, their top speed, uh, through that blue line to blue line, kind of flying 10 idea, uh, to measure max velocity. Uh, we also uh, utilize a lower body strength test. Uh, we, we do a lot of rear foot elevated split squats. So we'll do a force velocity profile with the gym aware, uh, with the, the rear foot elevated split squat to identify uh, strength uh, and, and help utilize that to profile where the player is to decide if they need to work more on strength or power from a lower body perspective. And we'll do the same thing with upper body uh, strength, simple bench press, uh, same idea, utilizing um, utilizing the gymware to identify uh, an estimated one RM for that. Uh, and we'll sprinkle in some other tests and assessments like isometric belt squat to uh, measure peak force output and uh, land-based sprinting uh, and, and resistance sprinting uh, as more of a continuous monitoring checkpoint, especially in the off season.
0: So uh, like these, like these uh, movement, or like these exercises you're going to do as a test, or as a training, is it like, is there like a certain test day you're gonna do all these tests? Or is it like, like what we mentioned, it's a micro dosing thing, it's also training and it's also like testing.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the idea of uh, tests being part of training. So it's a continuous thing and, and a lot of our technology allows us to accumulate that information. But in the National Hockey League, we do have a couple of time points where we have specific testing days. Um, we have what's called development camp in the NHL, which is basically our players that we've just drafted or have recently drafted or players, young players that we're, we're interested in. We can invite to development camp and we'll typically do a, an abbreviated version of that testing battery, uh, on one or two of the days. Uh, and then we have our main training camp for the NHL team, uh, which is kind of the same process. And, uh, that's league mandated can only be done on one specific day. So uh we have to be um pretty concise with with our our testing battery uh to get as much of that in as we can but again once once we have our team, we're testing a lot of those things continuously throughout the year
0: cool so uh I personally trained some of the ice hockey national team athletes in taiwan and to be honest when i when i like uh let them know that I'm gonna do a podcast with with you. They're very excited. That's so awesome. here's here's a question from from those guys. So for like uh for your perspective, is like like we just mentioned acceleration, like pure linear acceleration, like for the ten meter, as like the training volume and the max velocity, like side to side on the skate. Like how would you like, uh, let's say program the ratio between it, which one is more more important, or how do you like decide which day you're gonna do, which day you're gonna do like linear work, and which day you're gonna do like a lateral work?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. So in the off season, uh, we basically we'll have a four day training week, and two of those days we will emphasize lateral base work, so more change of direction, agility, Uh, that type of stuff. And then two of those days, we will have more linear based, you know, speed development work. Um, We'll progress distances over the course of the off season from, you know, basically from short to long uh, in with track terminology. So we'll start with very short distance uh, sprints. um, And, and as the course of the season or the off season progresses, we'll, we'll extend those and that's both on and off the ice. And we'll, we'll do those concurrently. Uh, And then our, our, our lateral based days, um, it's the same kind of thing. We progress from very uh, low intensity, um, eccentrically focused work, where it's it's really about being able to stop and control uh, lateral motion on one leg, and we'll progress those things over the course of the off season to be much more dynamic, and then ultimately progress those things to be um, in combination with linear work. So we might we might finish the off season with doing something like a five ten five agility where we're still working on changing direction left and right and stopping and starting, but we're also working on transitioning to do linear, linear work.
0: Cool. So, um, I noticed that some of them or probably a lot of like strength coaches when they kind of like train, uh, no matter as like hockey player or other kinds of like pro athlete, they're going to use a lot of like, Bilateral strength training instead of like unilateral strength training, and can you like talk a little about your thoughts on bilateral strength training and unilateral strength? Training?
1: Yeah, we do very little bilateral strength work. um We trap our deadlift uh one day a week uh, for part of the off season. Um, we'll we have some players in season that that like to do some of that stuff, and so that's part of the the reality of working at, at the NHL level is there's some flexibility that, the, you know, if the player wants to do something a certain way um, then, then we try to accommodate. But from a philosophical standpoint, most of what we do from a lower body strength development standpoint is unilateral um, or at least split stance type work, like the rear foot elevated split squat. We do a lot of true single leg squats, skater squats. Um, I think, uh, you know, one, I think from a structural perspective um, from an injury reduction standpoint anytime you're standing on one leg instead of two uh you know all of the stabilizers of that limb come into play it really becomes as soon as you as soon as you stand on one leg uh the whatever motion you're going through whether it be a single leg squat or a single leg deadlift it's really a uh, triplanar multi-directional exercise because you have to stabilize in three dimensions versus on two legs where you don't necessarily have to do that uh but i also think you know most of sport is performed on one leg at a time. So I think it makes a lot of sense uh, to develop strength and stability on single limbs. And then when you take into account the idea of bilateral deficit, that you can actually get stronger on uh, each leg individually uh, versus both legs together. And we've seen that, uh, to a really, really high degree, especially when I worked in the collegiate setting where, um, the, a lot more of the year was dedicated to, uh, to strengthening conditioning, we routinely had athletes that were able to rear foot elevated split squat, uh, between four and 500 pounds, um, without any issue. And they would not be able to do, uh, that type of load, uh, or, or, you know, anything near that, uh, bilaterally. So you can get a lot stronger on one leg at a time. Um, it's something that is becoming more, well understood, I think, uh, but it, it's still a little bit of a an outside the box concept, but it's certainly something that we've utilized for a long time and believe strongly in.
0: Can you like uh, explain a little bit about the concept of like bilateral deficit you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, I mean you know, essentially the human body is designed, is not designed to do um, anything propulsively on two legs. If you think about if you think about almost any sport, there's nothing that happens, uh, from a a locomotion standpoint or movement standpoint, uh, on two legs at a time. Um, some athletes will jump, you know, basketball players, volleyball players, there's some jumping that certainly occurs, uh, sometimes on two legs, but if you really break down biomechanically, uh, you know, look at those things a lot more of, of the action is typically happening. Um, you know, more one leg to the other, uh, and regardless, that's more from a, a power standpoint, which we'll still do bilateral power work. We'll do you know double leg plyometrics and loaded jumps and things like that. I think there's still a lot of benefit there. But from a strength standpoint um, and a propulsive standpoint, not much happens in real life uh, on uh, on two legs. Uh, so the ner- the nervous system is really designed to operate um, unilaterally uh, to to move the human body around. Uh, so the idea of bilateral deficit basically. Um, basically states that, uh, whatever your, you know, in theory, whatever you're able to, um, whatever strength level you're able to produce on two legs, let's say you could, uh, you could squat 100 pounds or let let's call it kilos, hundred kilograms with a, with a back squat. Um, the original thought process, well, that's two legs. So each leg is contributing 50% of that work. So if you did a single leg squat, uh, at best, you'd be able to single leg squat 50 kilograms but what the research and and in you know applied practices has shown us over over a long time is that you can actually produce much more force on each leg individually uh to account for more than that 100 kilograms so each leg individually might be able to produce uh or or squat theoretically 60 kilograms for a you know a total load of 120 kilograms so that's the, the basic premise of the the bilateral deficit there's been a lot of work done in this area as well um Mike Boyle, who's uh, a, a good friend of mine, has been a big proponent of unilateral work for a long time. Alex Natera is a, a strength coach, uh, I believe, out of Australia, works with rugby and and uh, has done a lot of um, really in depth research, uh, not just not just practical application, but work with force plates on uh, unilateral training and and has really shown the the benefit of that. So that's kind of the, the the nuts and bolts of the bilateral deficit and why we we sort of emphasize unilateral training so much.
0: Yeah, and there's like coaches and athletes gonna like single leg squat heavier than bilateral squat it's crazy right now
1: yeah I mean that's honestly that's what we've seen is when our athletes have gotten really really proficient in the rear foot elevated split squat using a a safety squat bar Um, again you know routinely had athletes that could uh, RFE over 500 pounds and they would not have been able to Back squat or safety bar squat, five hundred pounds. Uh, and and part of the reason for that is from a, a squatting perspective, is, as a specific exercise, the weak link in the kinetic chain is almost always the lumbar spine, is the back. So if you picture a, an athlete, uh, you know, trying to perform a one rep max back squat um, or front squat or any any kind of bilateral version, if they're not able to complete the exercise, they they fail the lift. It's almost always a failure at the low back. It's not the legs. It's not that the legs can't produce that much force. It's that the low back can't uh, sustain that much load. So when we're talking about um, trying to develop lower body strength, we want to take the weak link out of the equation as much as possible. So that's a whole nother reason for the unilateral strength development.
0: Cool. So, but I'm going to ask another question about, because like, like American football or like hockey, it's a collision sport. So how exactly do you make sure the, spinal region or the core is strong enough to be able to take the hit.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, I think, uh, you know, it's a combination of everything that we've talked about. It's it's not that we're not doing uh, core stability work. It's not that we're not doing, um, you know, upper and lower body strength work. I think it'd be hard to argue that somebody that's, that's split squatting, you know, uh, 350 pounds uh, routinely is not developing, uh, you know, specific uh uh, spinal uh uh, you know and core core strength and and spinal erector strength and the the type of um hypertrophy and mass it's necessary to be able to withstand those collisions so again it's it's uh it's a broad question there's not just one thing that contributes i think it's a it's a larger picture of, of uh the the program as a whole but all of these pieces kind of fall into place and and help to build that up
0: cool appreciate it so last question before i let you go okay I know you work with like different organization and you came from like the college setting to a pro setting. So uh, from college to like pro setting, like what's the difference between these two like different, yeah, at an NBA, uh, sorry, NCAA and a pro setting and how like, or what are the demands to be a performance coach at a pro setting?
1: Yeah, um, from a sports standpoint, I mean, it, at the NHL level, it's just so much. The skill level, the the ability of the players at this level, it's the best, you know, best seven hundred human beings in the world that play this sport. Uh, the the level of skill is just um, astounding uh, at this level. The college the college game is very good. Is you know anybody that plays that's able to play college hockey um collegiate hockey is an extremely good hockey player as well but it's just it's 10 levels above that at the nhl level um the speed is is it's faster it's quicker everything happens uh it's just sharper at the professional level um but probably the biggest difference honestly between the two levels is the schedule in collegiate ice hockey uh, almost all the games are friday saturday night so you basically have uh, Monday through Thursday to practice. you play Friday Saturday and you typically have a, a rest day on Sunday. Um, so there's a lot more there's a lot more strength and conditioning uh, that can happen. Uh, you can spend a lot more time uh, in season uh, focused on training and physical development and player development. the NHL level is much more about optimization because you play again, you play almost every other day uh, so it's it's much less about development. it's much more about uh, optimizing. Uh, So those are the biggest differences between the kind of the levels. Um, I would say, you know, what does it kind of take to to be able to work at this level, to become a a performance coach at the NHL level? Um, I mean, certainly uh, you need to have a, a, you know, great understanding um, of anatomy and physiology and biomechanics, all of the things that would come along with a you know, uh, a master's level uh, or higher academic uh, degree. Um, but really it's, it's, it's just coaching like any, any other sport. It comes back to relationships. It comes back to communication. Um, if the athletes don't trust you, uh, you're, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to do what you want. And that's really important at the pro level where quite frankly, they don't have to do anything we ask them to do. Um, so if they don't trust me, if they don't buy into what we're doing, they're not going to do what, what I need them to do. And if they're not going to do what I need them to do, then I'm probably not going to have a job for very long. So it comes back to those, those, you know, key relationships.
0: Yeah. So if there's like coaches and, or like therapists are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, you can reach me on, uh, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Both of them are at D McConnell 29. Just my, my name. Um, I do have a, a book. If, if anybody's interested in in sports science and uh, you know how to how to apply sports science in the team setting, uh, it's called Intent uh, Applied uh, Sports Science uh, for Practical Development. And uh, uh, at least in North America, that can be found uh, on Amazon. Uh, so you can find that under my name. And again, the the name of the book is Intent.
0: I'm gonna put the Amazon link on the podcast down below. Awesome. Okay, Great. appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Thank-